0: Diet culture gets us because we're vulnerable, because you know it makes us vulnerable, because it tells us that it's gonna solve all our problems and make all our dreams come true. And it's something we've been fed since childhood. So of course, we're gonna believe it. And of course, it's the easy thing to do and the thing that society rewards us for doing.
1: Welcome back to Let It Out. I hope you're feeling well and hanging in. I love doing this podcast. I've been doing it for seven years, and today's guest is a fellow podcaster who's been doing it for exactly as long as I have. She's my friend. She's my mentor. She's the host of the Food Psych podcast. She is Christy Harrison. She's now the author of the new book, Anti-Diet. She's a dietitian and nutritionist and honestly one of the most empathetic and intelligent and articulate people that I've ever met. I get to talk to her all the time, which I'm incredibly grateful for because I obviously admire her, look up to her, and I'm happy that you get to eavesdrop on this conversation where we talk about the connection between the current pandemic and eating disorders and body image and, Where she is currently with eating and body, we talk about diet culture, what she coined as the wellness diet and how dieting is what she calls a life thief and it steals your time, your money, your relationships and your sanity, which has been the case for me in all of those respects and you'll hear about that a bit more because I end up being incredibly candid about my continued ups and downs with eating and my body and disordered eating. And you'll learn a bit more about me and where some of this is rooted for me and where I am now. And plus, Christy gives some really good advice on how to talk about diet culture and recovery with people in your life. She gives some really great relationship advice. I always love speaking with her and I think you'll really enjoy eavesdropping on this conversation. Happy listening, I'm so happy you're here. No sponsor this week, but I just want to give a couple announcements. I wanna talk about my kits that I just made. I would love for you to check them out. They are digital kits for personal growing. They are filled with ideas and insights and anything that has inspired me. And packed full with journaling prompts. So the first one is completely free. It's journaling 101 essentially, but it's really for seasoned journalers as well. People who have a writing practice or find journaling and writing for emotional wellness useful because it's a four day workshop with Prompts on intimacy, on grief and change, and on evolution and growing. So, this workshop is completely free, and you just sign up with your email. I had a book come out about journaling in 2016. And since then, I've taught journaling workshops and writing workshops for creativity all over the world, actually. And I can't do those in person anymore. So I made, or right now, so I made this workshop, which is an experience of that but it's self-guided and completely self-study. So if you haven't done that and you want to, just enter your email. And then the other kits that are available so far, I did a kit called Interview. So I help other people start podcasts. Christy is actually one of the guests in my podcasting kit, which guides people through how to start a podcast. But part of that, the most popular module of that, the most robust module of that workshop was called Interview. And it was about conversation and connection and creating a safe environment to have a vulnerable chat like you're going to hear right now. (laughs) And I pulled that out to make it an a la carte offering. Plus, I gave a lot of other information about how conversation really became a meditation for me. Conversation became a way for me to learn how to listen and how to connect with other people more intimately. So I was getting a lot of questions about interviewing and connection. And I made this kit, this self-study kit about talking essentially and connecting, not just talking, but really having the space to have deeper connections through conversation and that is available and then i also have my breakups kit so if you or someone you know has a jarring relationship change these personal growing kits are journaling prompts but also a lot more about how to navigate a breakup through everything that helped me because there's so much advice around breakups it's the most universal feeling i think heartbreak but That felt really overwhelming to me. So I organized everything that was useful to me into the Soothe Kit and the Solve Kit for breakups. Links to everything I just shared about, including Christy and her book and her work, will be in the show notes. And I'll talk to you guys at the end. And I also just want to dedicate this episode to Amanda, who has worked with me since 2014. And it's actually her last week And if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, you've probably heard me talk about her. I wouldn't be still doing this podcast if it wasn't for her. She's so wonderful and has helped me for so many years. And I just wanted to publicly thank her here on the podcast. So I'll talk to you at the end. Enjoy this conversation. I don't even know how many times... We've podcasted together between me being on your podcast a couple times, you being on mine a couple times. I don't even know what number this is, but we've actually tried recording this particular conversation once a couple months ago. So this is actually take two of that, which just makes our count even higher.
0: I hope we have a million more after this. <laughs> Oh, I hope so too. I hope we continue podcasting into old age I know it 's crazy we we both started our podcast
1: around the same time, which has now been like seven years and I know it 's wild it brought us together, and now you know here we are podcasting in the midst of a pandemic <laughs>
0: <laughs> i know i 'm so grateful that we started when we did and that we have these platforms to be able to talk about this stuff. I saw someone on Twitter say like here's where we're at. They're like, Amazon is out of podcast mics or something like that. <laughs> so like, oh, wow. A lot of people must be starting podcasts. Oh, that's Which so is funny. Hilarious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, just think about it. We've podcasted remotely through from different states several times. We've podcasted in person. We've podcasted... Uh, I've come to your different places that you've lived. It's just... Yeah. We'll look back on this one. Someday and be like, oh wow, what a weird moment that was. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of we can trace our our own histories and, and the history of our friendship through like podcast episodes.
1: Yeah. It's really yeah. It's really wild and cool. So we were recording this episode. I came over to your place right before I went on this trip, and we were going to talk about your book, which I'm so excited to talk about, and just catch up and have you on the podcast. And then, but you were really sick that day, so we couldn't <laughs> even do it. Yep. And then now we're finally going to do that conversation, a version of that conversation. But can we start with just talking about this moment and what? quarantine and the pandemic first has just brought up for you personally and with the launch of your book because you were you know in the midst of a book tour when this started
0: yeah yeah it's just it's such a weird time and i mean i feel really grateful that i am okay my family is okay that we're doing all right and my husband lost his job so that's been interesting and i got sick last week or late the week before and was pretty sure it was a sinus infection because I get them periodically and I knew the symptoms and I was like, okay, it's allergy season. My allergies have been terrible. This is like a time when I would normally get a sinus infection. But because of this COVID-19 situation, it's just so terrifying to have any sort of respiratory or nasal symptoms going on. So I was like very scared personally for you know several days and did end up getting through to my doctor and getting antibiotics and she was really responsive and helpful, but she was like, well, you know, I can't see you. So, cause we did it like on telemedicine and she's like, I don't, we don't know for sure that it's not COVID. So like take these antibiotics and if they help, we'll assume it was a sinus infection. If they don't, or if you don't feel like much better by later this week, then I'm going to end you for COVID testing. And meanwhile, you and your husband both need to quarantine. Mm. So, Last week, we were just like stuck inside for the first time. And like, you know, thus far, we had at least been like getting outside and taking a walk or like, you know, standing in our little back deck or whatever, like being outside every day at some point for, in some way. And so that was the first time that like we were truly quarantined. We could not leave the house. We were like just kind of going, you know, up the walls a little bit but it luckily turned out it wasn't COVID. It's, you know, responded to antibiotics. I still have a little bit of like scratchy throat from it, but I didn't have to go get the test, which thank God because, you know, those testing facilities are really overrun and now a lot of them are even out of equipment. So glad I didn't waste a test that someone else could have used, but it's just been such a strange time with this sort of mix of feeling like privilege and gratitude that I'm in a place where we can sort of weather the storm. I mean, it's all relative because we're not millionaires, you know, like we are also worried about money and worried about our health and, you know, worried about what's coming next. And like my small business is basically supporting us through this time. And, you know, that's being hit by the pandemic as well because people aren't wanting to buy intuitive eating courses as much, right. You know, in this moment. Um, But also like, you know i know so many people who have have it so much worse being able to talk about this is really
1: complicated because i obviously feel the heaviness of the world and as a part of humanity that part is very sad but on a personal level emotionally i feel good actually which i feel really grateful for, but is a bit complicated to talk about because I don't want to, I'm so aware of my privilege and I'm so aware of what everyone is experiencing. And it doesn't, the heaviness of the world doesn't go away just by the fact that like, I'm managing things pretty well right now in this moment. Not that I haven't had moments and been scared and had to make decisions and all of that. But I think that it just makes it a bit complicated to talk about, but I think it's good
0: to talk about, you know? Yeah, I think it's all messy. It's it's such a mix. And I feel like this is really throwing into relief like all of the divisions and all of the inequalities that already existed in our system, like that those of us in the social justice space have known about and been talking about for years. And, you know, people who were doing this work well before my time were talking about for decades. And like, it's very clear now that like, you know, some people are weathering this better than others and some people it's barely touching because of privilege. And some people, you know, it's not the great equalizer as Andrew Cuomo said and others have said, like, as much as I love the work he's doing in New York, like, I don't think he had that right. You know, this this virus is definitely disproportionately affecting the people who already were marginalized and had less and and were the victims of this structural inequality that's existed in our country for generations so like all of that I feel like is very clear and sort of weighing heavily on me and like you know I'm recognizing that so much more and it's actually you know in a way again this is probably from a privileged position but like it's giving me some hope that people are talking about that, that the structural inequalities and health disparities that already exist in our society that nobody had really been paying attention to other than the people who were like public health professionals and sort of social justice people and like geeks in this area. Now that's being talked about and written about a lot more, the the inequalities and the, the need for... Rectifying that and for making things fairer and you know bringing more justice into our system and I really hope that this forces people and creates the political will to do something about it to change things so that when we recover from this virus we can actually recover into a place that is you know into an economy that is fairer, more just, more equitable, more sustainable, and that's part of what's keeping me going. I think when I feel personally despairing in some moments I I try to think about that and think about like this opportunity that we have that we can hopefully harness and use for good if we can act and you know do something with it while the while the iron is hot so to speak while this is happening or like soon in the aftermath aftermath thereof because you know otherwise things are just going to go back to business as usual
1: yeah I feel that optimism too like on a global level and then also, you know, on a personal level of how how this will affect me, how I'll look back at this time. I can already feel that I'm going to be nostalgic for it, like just in a in a personal way of not having to think about decisions really, not having mm-hmm. to, you know, FOMO is gone. <laughs> like there are, there are things that I think on a good day I do think that Good will come from this in on a large level, on a personal level. And I think that that is a silver lining, and it doesn't discount any of the negative things and how it's disproportionately affecting people. But that optimism, yeah, is is important, you know?
0: yeah, it keeps us going. I mean, I think that it would be easy to fall into a pit of despair with all this stuff. And there have definitely been moments when I have when I've like, not really wanted to get out of bed and felt like just dragging all day and it was hard to do my work and, you know, and, and I mean, we can talk about this too, the fact that we both already work from home for the most part, you know, other than events and things. And I had to cancel, you know, a number of speaking events and move some online and stuff like that. But for the most part, my days are pretty similar in terms of work that, you know, as they would have been before the pandemic but it's just so much harder to like do the work now that everything is so topsy-turvy. And I feel like I'm finally getting into the groove of it a little bit just because this has been going on for so long and I've gotten out of the place where I'm like so depressed that it's hard to do anything. Bar for productivity is so much lower now that in a way I like I feel you on the sort of thinking that you're going to be nostalgic for it factor because there's a part of it that's like, I feel like nobody's expecting much and so if you can do something you know if I, for me yeah. like when I've done something creative or when I've written something that I feel good about or captured something about this moment I'm like damn good job christy like you know you're you're doing great because there's just this less there's fewer expectations on me and so I I feel actually in a weird way like slightly liberated to create more it's almost like It's a holiday, like that week between Christmas
1: and New Year where everyone is just, things are quieter and everyone's more insular and for a very different non-celebratory reason, but it's that same kind of vibe, I think. Mm -hmm. And that part, I'm nervous about having to rejoin the world and what that's going to mean. (laughs) like that sort of warm up period cuz i really from a personal perspective i really needed this this has mm-hmm. been a master class in a lot of the things that i was working on and actually forcing me to work on them of slowing down and not distracting and being with myself and and very very confronting which i know it is for a lot of people in recovery and with body image and with food, it it totally changes things for many people. And it is for me as well. And, you know, I think that we are in the point of it now. The initial shock has worn off. There's this acceptance, there's this routine that's we've settled into or that I've settled into. And I think that, you know, we'll have to warm up again with whatever comes next. I think it'll be a slow Change, but
0: Mm -hmm. I'm already knowing that that will be bumpy. (laughs) Totally. I feel you. I feel like it is that similar kind of vibe of like week between Christmas and New Year's where people aren't expecting so much and where things are quieter. And I always have a rocky start to the new year coming back from that because I, you know, it just feels sort of like the weight of expectation comes back in and the, you know, oftentimes. I'll like put off things and I know a lot of people will do this of like, Oh yeah, let's do that in the new year. Let's make this plan Mm -hmm. for this project we're going to work on or let's aim for this deadline or something like in the new year, in the new year. And then, you know, everything just gets pushed off so that like early January is this tidal wave of stuff that has to happen. And I feel like that is sort of happening here too. I feel like it's a little less because we don't actually know what the end date is. So we can't really plan, but You know, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of like, okay, I'll get to that when the pandemic's over. I'll get to that later. Yeah. And I feel like that's all just going to be waiting for us when we get back to work.
1: In your book, you start with, which is super relevant and important to the content, where, and you've obviously told about it on your podcast and episodes of my podcast at this point, but you talk about your story with dieting and wellness and body image. And I'm curious about, as someone who works in this field, are you ever affected still? And has this affected you in any way?
0: Luckily, really insulated by thin privilege, honestly, by the privilege of like living in a small enough societally accepted body that I don't have to worry about whether I can find clothes in my size in stores or whether I can fit on an airplane seat or a theater seat or you know, just do a lot of things that Smaller body people take for granted in society, and that larger body people often don't have access to. So, like, that has been such an insulator for me. And I think that the fact that my relationship with food has gotten to the point that it has, in terms of like just not having diet culture beliefs and thoughts surface on a day to day basis, is. Partly because of all the hard work I've done and the therapy that I've been lucky to afford and the work that I've done in this field and all of that stuff, but also partly just because of the thin privilege and like not being someone in a larger body who has to constantly contend with fat phobia all the time. So, you know, with that caveat, I will say like in general, I really don't have issues with food and body image these days in the way that I did fifteen years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago, like there's definitely still little things like with the pandemic. It's like we're not going grocery shopping as much. So we've been having more like canned foods and like stuff that is not a taste sensation all the time. You know, like there's some stuff that I'm just like, ho hum, this is not great. I miss delicious food. I miss food like always being tasty, you know, and having to sort of adjust my expectations around pleasure with food when i had gotten so you know intuitive eating is like one of the arguably the driving principle is satisfaction is you know finding pleasure in food and allowing that pleasure and satisfaction to drive your choices with no regard for what diet culture has to say or like pushing aside what diet culture has to say in order to prioritize pleasure. And of course, thinking in some small way about nutrition and how foods make you feel, but not in the way that diet culture tells us we should. And so, you know, I had, I had been, I think, really like dialed into pleasure for so long, for like, you know, good five to seven years, I would say. I was just really psyched about most of the food that I ate. And now I think I'm not as psyched about some of my meals and realizing like how much that Makes me sad. I mean, of course, all of this makes me sad. The whole pandemic is depressing, but I feel like not having food be as delicious all the time has been an added layer of sadness to slog through. You know,
1: Mm.
0: for a lot of people, they're really intertwined, and they were for me for a very long time as well. Having Been a dieter and a disordered eater, and really struggling in my relationship with food. It was always like, How is this food going to affect my weight? How is this food going to affect how I look? How does what I eat affect what's on the outside? Now that's not the case. They're very decoupled, so that what I eat, I don't actually think about how it's going to affect my body. And when I have a body image thought, I don't think about how I should quote unquote eat in response to it. You know, body image, I think, is the hardest part for people in this culture. For for most of us, it's not a disordered relationship with food, is not just about the food. There's this underlying body image stuff that comes from diet culture and it's fat phobic and food phobic belief system about how people are supposed to eat so that they'll look a certain way. And you know, body image for me has always been this, or not always, but like, again, in the last five to seven years has been just this kind of thing that's like, Okay, occasionally I'll have a bad body image day or some thought that'll pop up that I can be like, oh, that's from diet culture and that really sucks. And I can push it aside and sort of let it be take its rightful place as just this passing thing rather than holding on to it and obsessing about it and letting it ruin my day. And so, you know, with this pandemic, I feel like there's just more random little body image thoughts that sort of pass by that. I wouldn't have expected like with not being able to leave the house for a week, not even being able to take a walk. It's like, oh, okay, I realized that like my body in motion and like being able to move and being able to take a walk when I want to was like a part of my body image that was feeling good and that was helping me feel sort of solid and connected to my body and like good about my body and not being able to do what I want to do is making me feel less great about my body. It's making me feel like my body isn't as capable or, I mean, being sick, I think does this sometimes too. And it's a very ableist thought as well of like being sort of angry at your body for not being perfect or not being quote unquote healthy, whatever that means. So I think that, you know, that piece of like the sort of and not that ableism is okay. It's, you know, another form of oppression. But I think that being quarantined because of my sinus infection has brought up some of these thoughts that I, you know, would not have expected myself to have around like my body's capabilities and sort of judging my body as not good or something.
1: Mm. It's interesting. I feel like when I'm sick, I sometimes have the opposite thought. And I wonder if this is a disordered eating or or diet culture thing. But the last time I was very sick, I I had this, I was really, really hungry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that happens when you, don't they say like, Feed a cold, starve a fever. You know, mm-hmm. like usually you lose your appetite when you know, have a fever. And anyway, I felt like the food that I was eating and the rest that I was doing, I knew was helping my body. And I really had this thought because I tend to be, and I'm more aware of it now than ever before, of how in my head, intellectually understanding your work and the work of people who have been helpful to me, but embodying it has been my challenge. And I really see that I'm so good at ignoring my body. I'm so good at detaching from my body. And when when I get hurt or when I get sick, I can't do that. It's screaming at me. And so when I'm sick, I kind of have the opposite thought of, shit, I've been an asshole to you, body. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to Okay, like I'll do, I got it. I'll do whatever you need. I'll, yes, I'll eat. Like I'll sleep. Okay, you know? And I start to feel guilty about like how shitty I've been
0: to myself. That makes total sense. I feel like I used to experience that a lot, actually. And I'm just realizing like this might be this phase of my life might be like the first time when I don't have that reaction, when it's not like, you know, being sick is sort of like a necessary reconnecting to my body. It's more like, being sick is just throwing a wrench into the like existing connection I have with my body. And that's not always true for me because I think there's sometimes when I will like overwork when I'm on a deadline or have a big project or something, like you know, various points when writing the book and even getting the book proposal ready to pitch. There would be like moments when I was overworking and not really connecting with my body as much and doing the things that it might enjoy, like, getting out into the sunshine and leaving the house and stuff like that. So being sick would like be more of a kind of like wake up call or force me to take care of myself more. But I feel like in the last few years, maybe it's just like that hasn't been the case. There's been sort of a a better connection overall with my body, which is kind of cool. It's like nice to yeah. see that that's progressed. 10, 15 years ago, I would never have thought that would be the case for me. Yeah.
1: So what do you think this Pandemic A is doing for diet culture and our relationships to our bodies while we're in it, and then I would love your take on how we'll look back on this from a body image and dieting culture standpoint 10, 20 years from now. You know, I I look at you as such a trailblazer in this field that I would love your take you know, from a historical journalistic perspective too.
0: Oh yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it's really a mixed bag right now. I think there's so much pressure on people to be like maintaining their body size, to be maintaining the way they eat and like all these horrible memes going around about the weight people are gaining in quarantine and how like bad it is supposedly and pressure on people to eat in a way that's like wellness diet approved, what I call the wellness diet, which is like diet culture's modern manifestation as, you know, it's all about wellness and health. It's not about weight, although like the weight will just release naturally, but it's about, you know, taking care of your health and blah, 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 which is, you know, it really is the same diet culture under a different guise, but I think there's a lot of that wellness diet rhetoric swirling around, around like, you know, just take care of yourself, take care of your immune system by eating the right foods and taking the right supplements and tonics and doing the right exercise and not letting yourself gain weight and blah, blah, blah. So it's like connecting this fear of mortality and fear of illness that we all have right now in a global pandemic to like specific physical traits or ways of eating that you're supposed to do in order to ward it off. And I think that's just so problematic and harmful to so many people. And I think it's capitalizing on it in part because of the history of how diet culture has morphed to where in the early 2000s, people were getting sick of dieting, sick of diets by their you know, the 20th century way that people would diet of like counting calories and going on this diet, going on that diet and getting wind of the fact that diets don't actually work long-term, that they tend to actually, I mean, they tend to be ineffective for 98% of the population and Oftentimes result in greater weight gain over time, and you know people just cycle through and yo-yo again and again and I think people were starting to get sick of that and there was a lot of science coming out about that to show that diets don't work and even medical doctors like high profile doctors and journalists were talking about this the fact that diets don't work, and so the diet industry really stealthily morphed itself into being about wellness and about health. And that's where we see the construction of the so-called obesity epidemic was in the mid to late 2000s. I talk about that in the history chapter of my book about how like, this supposed epidemic got trumped up and fabricated and then used to sell weight loss drugs and to scare people into doing diets and basically frightening a whole generation of people you know generations of people i should say you know everyone living in diet culture at the time and continues to this day but even the people who were among the ones who were like oh i don't diet i'm i'm over that or even you know the people who f- from a feminist perspective or from a fat acceptance perspective would say yeah you know politically i think it's shady what the diet industry does and i don't want any part of that i don't want to shrink my body i don't need to shrink my body to be accepted i'm fine as i am this invention of the so-called obesity epidemic really even frightened some of those folks into saying but i have to do it for my health I have to lose weight for my health i have to take care of myself by losing weight and so that allowed the diet industry to perpetuate itself and to be relevant in the 21st century and i think that that's happening again now because in the last 5 or 10 years Certainly like the last five years, fat acceptance and body positivity have really taken off and really started to make waves in our culture and and possibly to challenge the diet industry's bottom line, even the, the new guys of the wellness diet. And so I think that diet culture is kind of using this moment to say higher weight is bad for your health, and look at the links supposed links between covid nineteen and quote unquote obesity, and you know that's another reason why people should be worried about being larger bodied and another wor- a reason why people should be quote unquote taking care of their health by losing weight or by eating restrictively and so I think it's just fanning the flames of this wellness diet and it's allowing the wellness diet to flourish, and the wellness diet's really using this moment to, to further its arguments and to further itself so that diet culture can again kind of retrench and become more powerful. And so I think that you know my role in this work and and a lot of people in our field too who who do work around fat acceptance and body positivity and intuitive eating and diet culture recovery and disordered eating recovery, like we have to fight back so strongly against this and speak out and talk about why this is a problem and why diets don't work. So even if you're trying to do a pandemic diet to somehow ward off COVID-19, it's not going to be effective. It's actually going to cause more harm than good in the long run. And that there really isn't any good evidence at this point anyway to link higher weight to worse outcomes in COVID-19. All of that evidence is really suspect. It's really not accounting for confounding variables that we know can explain the lion's share, if not all of the difference that we see, you know, all of the excess risk that we see among people in larger bodies for various diseases. So things like race, socioeconomic status, weight stigma, weight cycling, all of those things are independently predictive of worse health outcomes, regardless of someone's BMI. And so, you know, I think we really need to be pushing back against diet culture's retrenchment and its efforts to like capture our attention again and recognize that that's what it's doing, that it's trying to use this moment to enrich itself. You know, the diet industry has been advertising like, you know, nobody's business on, on TV and on streaming services. And I've really seen an uptick of this in the, the pandemic era. And so, you know, we have to keep looking and following the money and saying like, who is who is benefiting from this? Who is profiting off of this? It's not actually the people who are trying to lose weight that are benefiting by getting better health, supposedly. It's the companies that are selling us a faulty product that they know doesn't work and that are just using this pandemic as a way to capitalize on people's fear. Exactly.
1: And having education around this and having the facts, I'm finding to be... Very important, and that's why you know your work to me is so important. I feel like I'm quoting you to people eight times a day because I'm someone who kind of came up in the wellness/slash diet culture and industry of even what I did, which we've had conversations before on this podcast about how you know for both of us, which I think is one of the most interesting things we've discussed, that you know people can listen to us discuss. In more detail in previous conversations, but about essentially the fact that, you know, when your career is in a malleable place and you have an eating disorder, how it might change the course of your entire career, which was kind of the case for both of us and let us hear, it, and it's okay. <laughs> but why I brought that up is just because I think that because that was what my history of my work is, I get so many people thinking that is still me and wanting to talk to me about essentially dieting, but they're like, oh, you're into that, like wellness and this and that. And what can I do? And and I think I I really have to talk about what what true well be we've switched this word to well being and we had a conversation about language and semantics when it comes to diet culture and wellness and the wellness diet as you say and switch reframing some of these things in our mind true well-being to me is essentially what i had to wake up to when i was sick you know like mm-hmm. gentleness listening eating to eating enough is wellness for me right now mm-hmm. and that has carried over to the pandemic for me of what i did For myself, when I was sick every single day, I've now been doing, even though knock on wood, I haven't experienced symptoms and have been fine, but I am fully taking care of myself in an honest way more than I would have in the past because this is happening, which is just an aside. But all of this to say, I still get people asking me questions about essentially dieting, but they framed as wellness and especially a lot of people in my family. And I shared this story with you, Christy, of like my mom, someone in a larger body being told by healthcare professionals, like she wouldn't get preferential treatment because of, you know, her risk factors are higher than other people and all these things. And I feel like I need, and I, a lot of people in my life in larger bodies, I feel like I'm constantly needing, I'm a very bad debater. The facts and the studies leave my mind when I need them. And so I feel like I'm constantly needing to stay Abreast of the information that you write about and share about, and read your emails every Monday, and like do the work for for myself and to stay up on it, but also like for the people I love in larger bodies to be like, actually, maybe there's another way to see it, or maybe and and they're getting, and what we're all getting all day long is, but no, 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 my doctor said, and it's like to stand up to that and say, actually, well, your doctor might not know this, you know, you need a lot of Science and that's why you just wrote an article for Wired. Is it? I haven't had a chance to read it yet, and I'll definitely link to it.
0: But it was essentially sort of about this, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was like you know, looking at the early, er, very early research. There's really only like three to four studies that even look at BMI, the connection between BMI and poor outcomes in COVID nineteen, and find any sort of relationship there, and looking at the flaws in those studies and what they don't control for that could explain that link that's seen and also like the problems with the studies where we don't actually know that, you know, most of those studies show what they claim to be showing or those reports. I shouldn't even say studies because in some cases they aren't official studies at all. It's like a CDC report of just descriptive statistics or a letter to the editor of a scientific journal. And it's like that doesn't really tell you what you need to know. So yeah, there's lots and lots of flaws with those things and I spent weeks working on that piece because, you know, I had been researching this and kind of doing a literature review along the way of what was what published studies were out there, what existed and kind of had a handle on it and wrote a, a blog post and an email in my to my newsletter and kind of summarizing the state of the science at that point, which was like April 3rd to 6th or something like that. And then it all changed. Like April 8th three new studies came out or three new reports, again, I should say, came out that seemed to challenge what I had been arguing. But then when I looked into them in more detail and you know, spent very long time looking over each of them it became clear that they really don't control for confounding variables like socioeconomic status, race, weight stigma, weight cycling, like all of the things that we know disproportionately affect people in larger bodies. And they also, you know, many of them don't control for known individual health risk factors as well, like pre-existing lung disease or asthma, cancer, use of immunosuppressive medications, you know, all things that we know are likely risk factors for COVID-19 that need to be controlled for if we're ever gonna say definitively that, you know, body size or any other characteristic is the cause or is a risk factor for this condition.
1: So my question for you, other than just sending someone your Wired article, which I'm so happy it exists. And <laughs> I I when we were previously going to record this podcast and focusing more on your book same thing like i'm so happy i have that resource that i can just send people in your podcast often and people that i have or you know not in a in a preachy sort of way but just you are a friend of mine and i've talked about you and i've mentioned you and when people discover your work who i feel so positive about the fact that they'll come to me and be like i had no idea this is like just our minds are blown by the the research behind things that we've just taken as as fact. And I think that's so interesting. But my question is with this, not even just in the pandemic, but beyond like in my situation, like when someone in my family or someone in a larger body is being discriminated against or by a medical professional or told they need to lose weight or just susceptible to, which is not their fault at all. And just completely due to diet culture in the world that we live in, what can we arm ourselves with or what information is best to have at hand? Because I find myself being pretty inarticulate about it and I I find myself getting a bit angry not at them, but I feel like it can come off like I'm almost angry at them because I can get so passionate about the issue because I see how my own internalized fat phobia has affected me over my life and my friends and people that I love. And so I think I can just get like, Oh my god! You have to read Health at Every Size. You have to read Christie's book and listen to this and do this.
0: And I think it's ineffective going that route. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I will say that it is just hard to have these conversations. Period. I have a master's degree in public health. I've been a journalist for seventeen years. I've done so much work in this area, and I still have a hard time. And I'm a dietitian who sees clients and like does this work with them, and you know, sort of individually counsels people and i still struggle with these conversations you know like it is hard it is the hardest one of the hardest things is to like bring this information to people in your life who might not be ready for it might not be asking for it you know it's very different to like have a client come to me wanting my take on something or wanting my expertise in their relationship with food versus like you know my cousin who's on a low carb diet or something so i think you have to sort of Pick your battles in some cases and say, like, okay, did this person ask me or open the door for me to give an opinion? If not, what's the cost-benefit analysis of like me weighing in or giving some little thing and maybe I can plant a seed, but also recognizing that they might react poorly or not be in a place to hear it and that's okay. Like everybody kind of has their process and their point of view and you know, some people's point of view might never change. Some people really are very entrenched in diet culture's way of thinking and might not be open to this information. And I know for myself too, like, when I was first introduced to Health at Every Size 10 years ago, I was not open to it either. I had a friend introduce me to it who was a fellow journalist who had personal experience with body image struggles and had witnessed people in his family go through weight struggles. And so like had, I think, a window into it that way and more empathy for it and just was ready to hear it and also is like a a real skeptic on conventional wisdom and science. And so I think he connected with it for that reason. But I was coming to it from a perspective of like, I had just made this major career change from journalism into public health and nutrition. I had like invested so much money and time already into going back to school for this stuff. And I was seeing myself at the time as like, I'm going to help, quote unquote, end the obesity epidemic, which you know i shudder to think now that those were my that that was a motivation of mine then but it was because i didn't know any better i was still very much entrenched in that way of thinking and in diet culture's point of view on body size and so when i first heard about health at every size i was just like yeah what are you talking about you know and i was open enough to like buy some of the books but they sat unread on my shelf for several years you know before i finally got wind of Health at Every Size another way because I had gone into specializing in eating disorders with my dietetics career. And that's, you know, where I first started hearing about Health at Every Size at conferences and stuff. And then I was like, oh, funny. I think I have that book sitting on my shelf. Maybe I should read it. And so, you know, it wasn't the first person, my friend Dan, it wasn't him who opened my eyes at the time, really. He planted the seed and he got me to like, you know, buy the books and not read them. But at least there was that, right? There was that sort of awareness and that giving of resources that I didn't really take up at the time. But then I did eventually circle back to it. In the introduction of your book, you address that there's
1: this sadness and discomfort and of course, resistance to what we're talking about right now. But essentially now, 10 years later, the book that you wrote focuses on letting go of the illusion that dieting can solve all of your problems. And there's a grief to that. There's a sadness Mm -hmm. to that. And you articulate that so beautifully in the book. But I think that's what we're talking about here as well in these conversations. I think part of it is asking people to let go of something that they've held on to so strongly and and I'm talking here like <laughs> as if i'm this has been easy for me, you know better than anybody. I have had ten steps forward, five back, you know so much with this. this is something I've been wrestling with am wrestling with, and you know which is why I talk about it so much and why your work is so meaningful to me, but can you talk about that grief a bit, and then I'm also curious how that has affected your
0: marketing of your book, of your work. Yeah, no, it's so interesting because I think that is a real sticking point for a lot of people. And as I, you know, I went through it myself too, that grief of giving up the dream, giving up the beliefs the diet culture sold us and sort of the grief of, you know, realizing that you've been told a lie and that you have to adjust your worldview to accommodate the actual truth. And giving up the, the belief that your body is someday going to be this perfect specimen as, you know, held forth by diet culture, that you're going to be able to achieve this thin ideal, this impossible thin ideal, and that all of the things that you want in life are going to follow from that, you know, and that you can, you can stop putting off the things you want to do in life once you've achieved that thinness. But, you know, you have to strive for that and always be working to attain that in order to be worthy of the things you want in life, you know, there's so much grief that has to happen around all of that stuff and it's compounded and made, you know, all the more real and difficult by actual weight stigma, you know, because as someone who is thin privileged, you know, even though I'm not thin like the models that are held up as the the so-called ideal in our society, I can still Again, you know, shop in mainstream clothing stores, go to a theater and find a seat that's going to accommodate me, fly on an airplane and not have to buy two seats. Like, you know, I have all this privilege and all these ways in which I can move around in the world unfettered and not be told by doctors that I need to lose weight, not be criticized about my weight by anyone but the most disordered people, I should say, because I'm sure there's someone out there who would criticize my weight, but, you know, it's people who are really in it themselves. I think there's a privilege in that, right? There's a privilege in not being subject to external weight stigma. And the people who are, the people who are dealing with doctors telling them to lose weight and family members telling them to lose weight and judging what's on their plate and judging what they're wearing and not being able to find clothes to wear and all that stuff, like it just makes it that much harder. And it just makes the grief that much more intense because oftentimes too, people in larger bodies if they've been a larger-bodied person their entire life, they've probably gone through a lot of bullying and shaming in school and by their parents and their family members and a lifelong process of being put on diets and told to lose weight. And there's been all of this effort put forth, all of this really wasted effort that they have to reckon with. Mm-hmm. And that is really painful. That is really hard. And especially when you have like people in your life who are still telling you you need to lose weight, who are still fanning the flames of that disordered eating, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's not an easy thing. It's a process and it can be a years and even decades long process of undoing diet culture's toxic belief system and all of the small ways in which it's gotten its hooks into you. And the people that I work with in my programs, they'll have... A lot of relief just from starting the process of intuitive eating and recognizing that this isn't their secret shame that they were unable to lose weight or that they've struggled with binge eating or whatever it might be that, you know, this is part of a larger cultural problem that, you know, our society forces people to try to all look a certain way and shames people whose bodies are larger than the supposed ideal. And the further away you get from that ideal, the more shame and stigma you you receive in our society. I think just recognizing that from like a Social justice perspective, I think, is very helpful to people and liberating to people to see, like, oh, this isn't just my fault. This isn't just me. This is a thing. Like, this mm-hmm. has a name. It's diet culture. It's weight stigma. It's, you know, I've experienced this just like millions of other people. So I think there's a real relief in that. And like, people can find a lot of relief too from starting to practice some of the early principles of intuitive eating. But I think the larger, deeper work and the grief work can take a really long time and it can take it can take years to feel fully at peace, you know, and fully sort of rooted in your anti-diet stance. So, yeah, I would never want to make it seem like this is just something you snap your fingers and you're cured, you know, and like yeah. it was, you know, in writing the book, I tried to bring that in where possible to just recognize that this is like a very complex situation and mm-hmm. it doesn't have one easy solution. But that, you know, we always kind of need to keep coming back to this idea that like, it's not your fault. You are not the problem. The culture is the problem. And I think when you can locate the problem in the culture and recognize that, it does go a long way to helping you weather the storm of the individual stuff, the ups and downs in your day-to-day with food and your body.
1: Yeah. And also it's not linear. You know, the grief Mm -hmm. doesn't, that's been the case for me of, you know, I've, I've taken strides in my recovery and my process with this and then gone back and had to get into it again. And that letting go and then having to do it again. And I think, you know, having to learn lessons that we've learned before again is challenging. And I think that in my case with something i've written about before and talked about before is anorexia nostalgia of mm-hmm. you know being in a body that was not healthy but praised because of diet culture and remembering that and the privilege and the power that comes with that and the the control and then Looking back and romanticizing that, even this is all you know—pretty subconscious—and having to have one side of my brain be like, "Wait, wait, wait! Remember Christy's work? Remember this? Remember diet culture?" Okay, got it, got it. But it's not intuitive because diet culture. It, I wrote this piece that you know because you you read and I talked to you about it at length, and I'm I'm sure I'll probably share it somewhere. But I wrote this essay essentially about this during. COVID of like, and I quote you in it saying, your work, while I'm so happy to see you growing and I'm so happy to see people discovering your work and finding your work. However, sadly, wellness influencers and the diet industry, and, you know, we were just talking, I think before we started recording, just how intense it is. It's full on right now with the Diet industry and commercials and billboards, and we have that all day long, and your work comparatively is very quiet, mm-hmm. and just wrestling with that, I think,
0: yeah, it is so hard. It's so hard to be swimming upstream in this culture. And like you said to the sort of memory of compliments you received about your body when you were restricting and dieting and you know, in an eating disorder. I think can be so toxic and so uh, seductive. You know, it's so easy to remember with rose-colored glasses what life was like back then. It's like, oh, I was getting so many compliments, so much attention from people yeah. sexually, self-worth, maybe. yeah, so much self-worth, yeah. So much, so much gets tied up in that, and I think we often forget, you know, what what went along with that, right?
1: Mm-hmm. The
0: fatigue, the physical difficulties the digestive troubles the hormonal abnormalities not the, being yeah. a very kind person <laughs> yes yeah the psychological impacts like all of that stuff I think it's easy to forget and sort of hold on to because diet culture conditions us to do this and like hold on to and romanticize the part where you were thin you know mm-hmm. and the part where oh being thin meant I got all this all this praise all these accolades and and sometimes it's very real access too in the case of people who are in larger bodies and then shrink themselves into a place that's considered quote-unquote normal, you know, there really is a a certain level of, you know, the lack of stigma and the access to spaces and the, the different way people treat you can feel so seductive too and can feel like you're losing so much if you let go of dieting and disordered eating. But I think the You know, important thing to remember is no matter what, no matter what you got from being thin, from shrinking yourself down into a place of, you know, supposedly greater acceptance, I think you lost just as much from your life because of it, you know, and you can, I mean, everybody has different ways in which this manifests, but I think, you know, as I talked about in my book, a sort of organizing metaphor of the life thief is like, Mm -hmm. you know, it steals your time, it steals your money, it steals your well being, it steals your happiness. Your joy, you know. There's other things too, like your energy, you know, your mental space, um, which I kind of put under the time umbrella. You know, like it steals so much from us in so many big and little ways. And so I Mm -hmm. think like connecting to that and and reminding yourself of that can help counter some of that nostalgia, even though our culture wants you to like bathe in that nostalgia always.
1: Yeah, it's really pervasive, and I think. I also have thin privilege even as I vacillate, but I think just the amount of change that my body has gone through and not being in, which, you know, part of that is normal, but in my case, it's very clearly related to disordered eating and that amount of having to get all new clothes again and again and again and, and, and seeing, you know, even though I have had Some of what you're talking about with the access and people treating me differently, for sure. Even though mine is not that perceptible, even to some people, it is perceptible to me, which therefore affects my confidence and therefore how I move through the world and then therefore how people treat me, right? And so Mm -hmm. that is something that is internalized because people very, very close to me who don't have the same than privilege that I do, seeing them passed over for jobs, seeing them discriminated against on the basis of size and weight makes me want to run so far in the other direction that I see I can see that in in me. You know, I've said this in things that I've written too of like, it can feel like I'm a brain surgeon having a stroke. Like I know <laughs> I'm so aware of your work and have read so many things and 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 understand it but then in my own life embodying it having trouble and and I think just you know what what you've said to me so many times is and been so kind to me I know like in this last most recent struggle of this you know I was so nervous to tell you and I remember telling you when you you were just so kind to me and met me with so much gentleness and because you get it you get how pervasive this is and there are some people we've talked about this before and i think i'm i'm one of these people where diets are able to do it for a longer amount of time I'm probably not articulating this properly a longer amount of time without the binging effect mm-hmm. you know and it's really a it's very ocd related and control related I'm interrupting this episode briefly to give you a discount code for the kits. Quarantine 30. It's a time where a lot of us might have less time. Some of us might have more time, but it's a good time perhaps to do some reflection. And my kits are for personal growing. They're everything that I've done as someone who has been very steeped in personal growth and self-help and created my own version of it through creativity and journaling and listening and reading so much of it. I've curated everything that's helped me into these kits. So if you want to give them a go, use the code quarantine30 and have a little discount 30% off. All right, back to my conversation with Christy. I love The Life Thief. I I don't know if it's okay for me to say, but that was a that was a working title of this book, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Totally.
1: And which I, I love that term so much. And I make a cameo in this book, not to brag. <laughs> um, so great. But, I love this, stuff in
0: this
1: book. <laughs> but I, I talk in there about how The Life Thief steals my money. But as you know, I could have made that cameo and How It Stole my time, creativity, relationships, you know, but one good thing is that it got me a lot of self awareness It got me this relationship with you, which is lovely, <laughs> and hopefully being able to talk about my experience and write about my experience will you know someday be able to to help other people to get people to work and people in this in this field, which is a silver lining
0: yeah, no, it is so hard, and I feel like. I have so much compassion for you going through ups and downs with it and for anyone going through ups and downs with it because it is really so pervasive. You know, diet culture is so pervasive. It's so easy for it to suck us back in. But then, especially when you have sort of personal psychological stuff tied up with it that's like very long standing, you know, the weight stigma that you saw people close to you experience growing up. I feel like that is such a profound thing that's, you know, it's hard to break through that, that sort of like deep felt sense and sense memory of what you experienced and and saw others experience and how you wanted to just run from that. You know, there's like this embodied, like you were talking about earlier, like it's one thing to intellectually know it and it's another to embody it. And I think that embodiment really has a lot to do with trauma and the need for trauma recovery. And we're not in a culture that allows us to do that. You know, we're in a culture that constantly re-traumatizes us and tells us just to suck it up and like, what are you been talking about? Trauma? What's that? You know? And like, I think it's incredibly difficult to do that deeper work when everything outside of you is pushing back on it like that. So I think it's only natural for it to be this kind of cyclical lapsing and relapsing process for so many people.
1: Yeah, and I loved the part in your book about trauma and you mention trauma and how we handle it or rather don't handle it, you know, in our culture and how that impacts us and I think doing a lot of the work I've done in therapy what's come up for me is that what I've made for some people they make, you know, being thin or making themselves small mean you know staying small or staying like a a child where i've i've kind of unpacked that it's been my rebellion or it's been my way of differentiating myself my way of being an adult and so it's just this wrestling with these things that are so intricate and so different for everyone and it's processing feelings and being into our body because what is so much more comfortable for me is to detach and restrict and control Mm -hmm. but it's the softness it's the vulnerability it's the feeling of the trauma that is actually where the richness is
0: right exactly and like going into that feels terrible nobody wants to go into that right nobody wants to delve into the trauma and feel it again and have to process it and I think that's what is necessary for healing, unfortunately, and it has to be done in such a safe way in a way that doesn't re-traumatize you and just make it worse. So having a good therapist, having a healing community around you while you're doing that work, I think is so essential. But some folks don't have access to that. Some folks don't have the resources or just the environment that's going to support trauma recovery. And so you know, I think we need to be sensitive to that as well, But sometimes these things, and I and I think that's why, honestly, so much, I mean, there's so much wrong with the eating disorder treatment field in this country, not least of which is that a lot of it is still entrenched in diet culture and still, you know, there are these harmful weight stigmatizing beliefs that still get thrown out in eating disorder treatment in a lot of cases. And I think it's not a safe environment in some ways for people to do that trauma recovery when they're Maybe going to recover into a larger body, or when yep. there's so much mixed messaging around, like, it's okay for you to gain weight, but only to a point, you know, we're, quote unquote, we're not going to let you get fat. That's literally something that clients of mine have had said to them in treatment. We're not yeah. going to let you get fat. I had that said to me a million times. <sighs> and that is so insidious. It's so re traumatizing because you're in treatment to try to. Get help for this eating disorder, you're in a really vulnerable place. And then your eating disorder is just being given more fodder for, for its fat phobic thinking, you know, and mm-hmm. more, it just fans the flames of it. So, yeah, I think that eating disorder treatment, unfortunately, can be a source of trauma for a lot of people that they then have to dig their way out of, too. And that should not be the case. You know, a treatment should always be a safe space where people are able to get the help they need. And yes, it's going to be challenging and there's going to be bumps along the way and no clinician is perfect, of course. And I think clinicians owe it to their clients in eating disorder treatment to not be fat phobic and to not fan the flames of that because then that just creates another layer of stuff for the person to have to uncover and dig their way out of.
1: Yeah. That's why I just really, to be very honest with you, I just really feel like... (laughs) Your book should be required reading to anyone in the field, and if they're not, I just don't think they should be trusted. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just really hard for me to like see any. It just makes me sad, like people talking about helping people with eating disorders without having the information that I've learned from you and the people that you've introduced me to through your work and. Anyway, that,
0: that's my opinion. <laughs> I love it. I will co-sign that opinion because I, you know, and this has been my experience too in doing this work. You know, I never actually received formal eating disorder treatment when I was in my eating disorder. I received a lot of like, oh, you're fine. You couldn't possibly have an eating disorder because you're not thin enough, you know, because mm-hmm. I was, I never got to the point of emaciation that people were concerned about me. I got to the point where people were like, ooh, what's your secret, you know? Yep. And so that was incredibly triggering and incredibly frustrating, but these were like just general therapists or medical doctors and things like that. This was not eating disorder treatment providers because no one even referred me to an eating disorder treatment provider because they didn't think I had a problem, you know, but what I've seen in my work with clients and my work as an eating disorder treatment provider is just such rampant fat phobia and such rampant lack of understanding of the principles of health at every size and intuitive eating when, you know, in general in the field, it's pretty well accepted that those things are the gold standard of treatment, or at least there's a lot of the field believes that. I think there's unfortunately these pockets in the field. And, you know, I talk about this in in the book of how it's like kind of the more corporate, you know, large multi-center eating disorder treatment centers that have to think about their bottom line and unfortunately sometimes include a track around weight loss for their binge eating disorder patients, but not for anyone else. And God knows it shouldn't be included for anyone, but especially sort of siphoning off the binge eating people into this like binge eating recovery and weight loss track is so incredibly harmful and you know, just having weight loss be a part of the treatment at all is so incredibly harmful and they just don't see the disconnect. They just don't see how harmful that is and how that's keeping everyone stuck. Not just the binge eating clients that they siphon off into that track, but that everyone witnessing that, every eating disorder client who knows that that's a possibility is going to feel more pushed into their eating disorder because they don't want to be the person who binges, who has to lose weight, you know, and What does that say that we're creating this, you know, special section or that not I shouldn't say we, because I would never do this, but that our treatment professionals in some cases are creating this, you know, mandate of well, heal your relationship with food, but also lose weight. It's just ridiculous. Yeah.
1: I mean, honestly, I'm so happy your book exists because I think it's really a comprehensive place where a lot of your work and research lives and I'm so proud of the book that you made. And I think it was pretty kismet. I received a super advanced copy of the book. I don't know if you actually remember this, but
0: I got it before you did. Do you remember that? That's right. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. It had been shipped to my office and like, I hadn't picked it up yet. And you.
1: Yeah. And I was like halfway through it or something.
0: (laughs) I was like, oh wow, that's how the cover looks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it really reopened my eyes to all of this at a time that I really needed the content again. So it was, it was really, really great. And I honestly, I, I was, of course excited about your book and of of course eager to read it to support you as my friend but i i think i really did think that oh well, i probably like know all this information from being so steeped in your work and have having listened to your podcasts for so many years but i was really surprised and delighted by everything i learned from this book you know the book kicks off with this deep History of dieting, which you know, as someone who loves history and you know has a self-studied PhD in dieting myself, you know, the whole thing was just so fascinating, and you did so much research. And you know, people have to read the book to to really see all of that. But I thought, you know, maybe at this point, kind of in a, in a quick fire sort of a way, maybe we could just go through a, a few. If I could just put a couple pennies in your jukebox of some of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> Totally. What was, of the history section, what was the most surprising or interesting thing for you? For me, the part about ancient Greek and Roman, the insight on moderation versus overindulgence was, mm-hmm. was incredibly fascinating. You talk about the graham cracker guy, the guy who came up with graham crackers. And you know these are all things that are in the book, but is there something that to you, really sticks with you, you that you could share.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was so fascinating writing that chapter and I honestly had to cut so much. It was so sad. Wow. The, the stuff that I had to leave on the cutting room floor that I'd love to like repurpose and use somewhere else. Yeah. Some point, you should just do like, a history episode of your podcast. I should. I know. I would totally, totally listen to that. And like, or like a blog post too. Cause there's, I feel like I wrote some sections, like fully written sections that I ended up. Oh yeah. That are just like good little essays. Yeah, there I mean some of that stuff like the person who popularized the calorie as a diet technique was fascinating Lulu Hunt Peters this medical doctor in the early 1900s who was like had been fat herself and then had dieted and kept the weight off for a year or two or something like you know most people gain it back within 5 years I think she was still within that window but was like so fat phobic and so obsessed with calories and weight loss and had these like random weird little illustrations she did in the book or that like her, I think her nephew had done or something like that. It was wild. So that was like one of the sad things that I had to leave out. But I think the the thing that I, some of that stuff that I cut in order to be able to focus on was this thing that I think was the most fascinating and important piece of the history, which is that from the start, diet culture was really tied up with racist and xenophobic and misogynistic ideas, and that that was the justification for fat phobia that racism and misogyny were were really kind of the ways in which fat phobia became a thing and became this cultural ideal and the belief system of diet culture has fat phobia basically as one of its main tenets and I think You know, it wasn't until racist early evolutionary biologists in the mid 1800s started to look at like body size as a supposed marker of evolutionary inferiority that, you know, larger bodied people were supposedly evolutionarily inferior. They were drawing on like racist ideas that already existed at the time that had been used to justify slavery and create a hierarchy of different races. But they added this sort of quote unquote scientific layer on top of it where now it 's evolution now it 's science, and so I think that 's where really the the root system of diet culture started to develop in terms of the fat phobia, and it was deemed that you know people of color and indigenous people and people who were basically not white Northern Euro- European men were somehow inferior because they were larger bodied and that larger body size signaled some kind of lack of evolution or what they called like atavism or barbarism or something like that, which is just ridiculous. And the phobic beliefs really didn't exist until racism and misogyny like kind of brought them in on, on their coattails. And from there, that those fatphobic beliefs really took root in the culture before any health arguments about body size were really made. So like, you know, going back to Greece and Rome, like there was this belief that like larger body size was maybe a problem, but it was also thought that smaller body size was a problem, both because they were sort of out of balance, quote unquote, and like moderation and balance were the norm and the thing to aim for. And, you know, the ultimate goal. And so like being too large or being too small, whatever that meant, was undesirable and therefore unhealthy because it fell outside of this mythical norm of moderation. But there was no sort of systemic bias against fat bodies the way that there is in diet culture today and the way that there started to be in the mid to late 1800s in the U.S., because that was really driven by racism and misogyny. And there was no thinking about health in terms of, you know, larger body size being bad for your health the way we think of it today. That did not exist in the early days of diet culture. In fact, doctors thought that people, that larger body people were healthier, that it was better to be larger body, that the default for bodies was to gain weight with age and that that was a good thing. And initially, when people started to respond to the fat phobia that was coming into the culture by going to the doctor and saying, Hey, I want a weight loss diet. Hey, I want to lose weight. Because there was this guy, William Banting, who wrote like the first best selling diet book, who had been able to convince one doctor, had like jumped around from doctor to doctor until he finally found someone who would put him on a diet. And it was experimental and very austere and very similar to like a very early version of the Atkins diet, basically and he wrote this best selling book about like how this diet changed his life and so yeah and so then people were going to the doctor and asking to be put on a diet like this guy was and you know initially doctors were like no what are you talking about like this is doctors saw the desire for weight loss among the general population as like mere vanity and a uh, you know something that was taking them away from the true medically necessary interventions that they should be doing. It was like a distraction. You know, people shouldn't be asking for weight loss because it's taking their time away from the the things that really matter. So interesting, right, to think about that in comparison with how doctors view weight loss today. And so it was over time, sort of the drumbeat of fat phobia and like people going into the doctor asking for weight loss again and again, kind of wore the doctors down, basically. That and the burgeoning insurance industry that was starting to say, from our data, very limited, very biased, skewed data, quote unquote, overweight people seem to have, basically seem to cost us more money on our life insurance policies. And wouldn't you doctors like to be a part of This burgeoning health insurance industry that was coming out by, you know, weighing people and helping, like, reduce their risk, basically. It was all about the insurance company's bottom lines. And so those two things, like the public vilification of fatness that was driven by racism and misogyny, plus the insurance industry, you know, the burgeoning insurance industry's desire for profit, kind of combined to drive doctors in this direction of like, okay, fine, we'll give people weight loss diets, we'll have scales in our offices, we'll weigh them as part of care, we'll talk about weight as something to do with people's health. So that shift happened between like the late 1800s and early 1900s and really diet culture was in full swing by like the 1910s. But it's interesting to think about that, that, you know, that's really not that long ago, right? We're talking in 2020. It was like probably, you know, 150 years ago or so, doctors were totally not thinking about fatness as any sort of health risk. And yeah. in fact, oftentimes thinking about it as a as a benefit, as as something to to aim for. Yeah. And the reason that we got to this point is this combination of racist and misogynistic beliefs and like profit-hungry companies and, you know, it kind of just spiraled and snowballed from there.
1: Yeah. I feel like this project hit so many notes for you with your background being so perfect for it as an activist, someone interested in and having worked in food and, you know, of course, journalism and then your own history with disordered eating. I just really admired the entire book and how well researched it was. You did so many interviews and it's so inclusive and you did extensive research on feminism and diet culture, which I know is something that you already were interested in. And specifically there's this quote, dieting is the most potent sedative. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah,
0: it's like dieting is the most potent political sedative there is. A quietly mad population is a tractable one. Oh, so yes, good. Yes,
1: so good. It stuck with me. I hadn't heard that before I read it in your book. Can you talk about the sentiment of that quote and just any nugget from that portion of the book that was most fascinating
0: to you? Yeah, I think this is so interesting and Naomi Wolf is a sociologist who wrote this book, The Beauty Myth back in I think it was like 19 19- sometime in the 1990s, you know, it's a long time ago. I read it in college, actually. It was one of the first books that I was introduced to on the connection between patriarchy and diet culture, even though she didn't use the term diet culture, but basically, you know, patriarchy and dieting. And her point in that book, and, you know, subsequent scholars have talked about this as well, is that at points in history when women have achieved the greatest political gains, like getting the vote in 1920. And of course, only certain women got the vote, right? It was basically white women who were getting the vote at that point because of the way that voting rights were enforced. But, uh, you know, some women got the vote in 1920. In the 1960s, you know, the pill came out, women's liberation was happening. And there were these great political gains being made then. And then she talked about like the 80s and 90s and some, you know, gains that women had made. But every at every moment in history when there were these big political shifts in favor of women's rights, the thin ideal ratcheted even thinner, basically. So started in the late Victorian era with Charles Dana Gibson, who created the Gibson Girl, this like iconic image that was plastered all over magazines and, you know, a cartoon basically, but it was used to sell all kinds of products and, you know, kind of like this trendy drawing at the time. So that had been sort of like the first thin ideal body that was ushered in but then you know it was still relatively quote-unquote real by today's standards like it was impossibly narrow-waisted like the victorian ideal with corsets but otherwise not emaciated not terribly thin you know certainly not larger bodied and voluptuous and voluminous the way that the victorian beauty ideal had been because the victorian beauty ideal was really about taking up more space and being fat was actually seen as a good thing, you know, being being plump was a virtue. So the Gibson girl was kind of the first like major step away from that in the early, I think it was like 1901 or something that that image first came on the scene. But in 1920, we had, you know, women got the right to vote and suddenly the flapper aesthetic was all the rage. And the flapper aesthetic was very much this like straight up and down dress that women had to bind their breasts to fit into and, you know, no curves were supposed to be peeking out. And so another scholar, Laura Frazier, talks about how this switch from like the Victorian beauty ideal of taking up more space and yes, having a corset to like slim the waist, but it was supposed to be to accentuate the fullness of the other body parts that suddenly in the 1920s around... The time when women got the vote, it switched to being this quote-unquote inner corset. That suddenly, you know, women weren't actually wearing corsets, but what they were doing was dieting. They were trying to lose weight in order to fit into this aesthetic that was popular at the time of the flapper. And so Naomi Wolf's point is like that—that's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that the that thin ideal became thinner than ever, and really. Launched the start of diet culture and da- the diet industry around the late 1910s, early 1920s, around the time that women were getting the vote. And same thing in the 1960s, that with women's liberation, like I did the research on this to just see, like, what is the actual timeline? The Feminine Mystique, Betty Friedan's book that sort of hailed as ushering in the second wave of feminism, was published, I believe. And don't quote me on these numbers, but it was something like, you know, published in 1962, Twiggy was crowned a fashion icon in 1963. It was like one year, you know, not even a year apart, basically. On the heels of second wave feminism being born, suddenly we have this 16-year-old prepubescent-looking model, you know, being crowned the supermodel and the the face of a generation. You know, the face of, what was it? The face of 63 or whatever it was, right? Yeah. So you know, again, Wolf's argument is like, that's no coincidence that at this time when women had just started to get this burgeoning political power and second wave feminism was born and women were starting to come into their own politically and have more power in society and agency and perhaps could have really upended things in the 1960s or when they first got the right to vote in the 1920s. But it was the diet culture emergence of that thinner than ever ideal really kind of put a stop to that curtailed it by distracting women from their growing political power is this happening now with this wave of feminism in any way do you see yep <laughs> i definitely see it i think that it's happening now with wellness with the wellness diet you know and it's not mm-hmm. calling itself the wellness diet it's saying it's not a diet it's a lifestyle and this is about feeling your best and and it's complicated too right because it doesn't exist in a vacuum, like not only does that sort of fixation on wellness come on the heels of like ever, you know, arguably ever growing political power and and maybe like a fourth wave of feminism that we're now in where women are freer than ever because of the internet to so like work from home and create businesses and have, you know, non-traditional income streams that allow them to be more independent and stuff like that. And I use women inclusively too, because that includes trans women as well. and You yeah. know, non-binary people and stuff too. So there's that piece where it's like there's this growing political power among women and femmes and wellness kind of comes in as a convenient distraction. And there's also like the medical field has ignored women's health and wellness for so long and ignored women's well-being, downplayed a lot of issues that women in particular have around reproductive health and symptoms that are unexplained and syndromes that We don't really have a cure for or treatment for with Western medicine. And so I think a lot of women and femmes and people assigned female at birth tend to be frustrated by that lack of support from the medical system. And so it kind of opens the door as well to these alternative health crazes, like, you know, the stuff that Goop is peddling and the wellness diet in general. So I think it's it's complicated because there is this lack of like understanding and awareness of Women's health needs. And I think diet culture plays a huge role in that as well. Because I think, you know, as was my experience, and I think yours and so many people we know, you get into this wellness world, you start to fall down this rabbit hole and you start to cut foods out of your diet and you start to restrict your eating. And then suddenly you have a whole host of other health problems pop up, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it was like not having a period and having fatigue and brain fog and acne and and things that were sort of just nebulous and unexplained and western medicine didn't have a good answer for. But I think the reason that western medicine didn't have a good answer for it is because western medicine is so tied up in so many ways with diet culture that it saw the things I was doing as healthy, you know. Oh, you're yeah. you're compulsively exercising, they didn't call it compulsive, they called it, you know, healthy, right? You're you're restricting your eating to a certain low number of calories and attempting to cut out carbs. That was considered healthy. That wasn't considered restriction. That was considered you're doing great for your health. So, doctors were stumped as to what could be going on with me because even if, you know, very few of them ever even asked about my eating and exercise, but if I ever talked about that, it was like, okay, well, you're doing great. You're doing fine. You know, you seem healthy, right? You're doing all the things right. And so, you know, really, though, what was going on was that my body was shutting down because it wasn't getting enough energy and because it was deprived. And when your body's deprived, it does all kinds of weird things like making you tired and making your period stop if you get a period and making you have unexplained hormonal fluctuations and and brain fog because you're not able to concentrate because you have a lack of energy coming in. And so, you know, I think Western medicine and alternative medicine really miss that piece of the puzzle that for so many people, the issue is not... Needing to cut out a food or having something be, you know, they're intolerant to something or they need to eat more of something else. It's that they're not eating enough in general and Mm -hmm. that they're overexercising and that they're deprived and restricting and that's causing all the problems and that telling them to cut out gluten or a million other things like the wellness diet would do and does for so many people. you know, I have so many clients who come to me with this long list of foods that their naturopath or their acupuncturist or even sometimes their medical doctor told them to avoid. And really the issue is that their body is just starving. It just needs more food and that these additional restrictions are actually making the problem worse.
1: Oh God, that's so fascinating to me. I think what I've been wrestling with, with all of this, and I've talked to you about this, before as, as my friend, but I would love your your thoughts on this now. Hearing all of this, and I knew a lot of this from reading your book and just hearing it again, it's just so incredible, all of this information to me and fascinating. And we always talk about body image on on this show. And you might remember the question I always usually ask about what people do when they're not feeling good about their body or having a bad body image day, how, how to pivot but I think, you know, instead of asking you that question today, what I think is really interesting and something that I'm wrestling with is this morality, I think, attached to that I'm choosing to attach to anti-dieting mm-hmm. because there's this morality attached to wellness and to moderation and to exercise and, and a lot of these things that we've just been discussing for the last hour and you have a lot of resources and I think you have a blog post about like how health is not a moral issue and we've discussed that at length and I think that that's really fascinating but I'm really seeing that at least for me because I really look at this from you know sort of an addiction perspective of the addiction being dieting, the addiction being diet culture, there's a morality that I'm attaching to doing what I believe is the, the right thing over the popular thing. And I feel like it's control in an uncontrollable world. It's community, mm-hmm. dieting it's this built-in community it's this built-in you know thing to talk about and water cooler talk and control and there's memes about it and i get it it's a lot to let go of but i feel like for me there is morality in doing the right thing and feeding myself and not fitting into my clothes and getting new ones and having conversations like this which are sadly like maybe it would get a lot more downloads if i talked about a $70 wellness thing or like mm-hmm. if we put the if we put the subject line of how to lose weight instantly in quarantine, you know <laughs> That sadly might get more downloads than whatever we call this conversation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I guess what i'm trying to say is like do you see that from a spiritual perspective or from a Morality perspective of the karma of this or the goodness of this?
0: I do. I mean you know, it's tricky. It's complicated, right? Because I think diet culture has already created so much morality around body size, what you eat, what you don't eat. And I don't want to like replicate that and just be like, oh, now the new morality is anti-diet. Now the new way to be a good person is to be an anti-diet person, right? Like I think that is problematic, but... Because Because of course it's not people's fault, Right. Exactly. Like, you know, like, I'm one of them. You know, like. <laughs> Right. And I was too. And you know, yeah. it may be someday again, who knows? Diet culture gets us because we're vulnerable, because you know, it makes us vulnerable, because it tells us that it's going to solve all our problems and make all our dreams come true. And it's something we've been fed since childhood. So of course, we're going to believe it. And of course, it's the easy thing to do and the thing that society rewards us for doing. And Oftentimes, we don't even know the difference. We don't even know any different that we could choose to opt out of diet culture. It just feels like what we have to do. So, there's no fault or shame in falling into it. You know, I think it's not the individual's problem. Like, I think I try to have a lot of compassion and empathy for individuals and call out the culture. You know, I think the culture is what really needs to be called out and changed. And individuals are part of a culture, yes. And the decisions that we make can help shape the culture too. As Kelly Deals, the feminist marketing coach says, we are the culture makers and we are, you know, we do make the culture, but I think also the culture makes us. And those folks who are in diet culture and have been made to do certain things and act in certain ways by diet culture deserve nothing but compassion and empathy and support. I think where it gets... Tricky is when it becomes because to me it really is a social justice issue. That's what this comes down to is you know equity and justice for people in all size and shape bodies. And right now we're not seeing that. Right now there's huge social injustice being enacted on people who are in larger bodies, also in on people who are in disabled bodies or bodies with chronic illness where they're being told, you know, they need to eat a certain way or cut out certain foods or do certain things in order to be healthy and therefore worthy, right? There's so much healthism in our current conception of health and that is really harmful. That really harms people who don't match up with that perfectionistic discriminatory idea of health and that's most of us, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm really... I'm really against any form of social injustice. I know that's not like a radical thing to say probably to, especially to people listening to this podcast. I'm sure most people here would agree that we don't want to be for any form of social injustice. We are against social injustice. We are for social justice. And I think in order to be living in line with those values, in order to be enacting social justice, we do need to dismantle diet culture. We do need to push back on the cultural norms that push thinness and eating a certain way and being you know, a certain picture of health, and that it's a form of social justice to, to stop that and to welcome in people who are larger bodied, who are disabled, who have chronic illness, who don't match up with a culture's supposed ideal of health in so many different ways. That's really where I focus I think is like it's not so much morality as it is justice and Mm. yeah it's the right thing to do to pursue social justice but not from like a punitive place or a place of like you're a bad person if you don't do this it's just this is the world that I want to live in this is the the kind of equality that I want to see and that's what I'm gearing my work towards so if someone is struggling in diet culture and is being harmed themselves by diet culture and they're also like enacting that social injustice on other people then yeah i think they need to be challenged and they need to be pushed back on it's you know if it's someone who's like selling weight loss products for example if it's someone who is selling a program or in charge of a company that is promoting weight loss or that's promoting Toxic ideals of wellness, then I'm all for like interrupting that and pushing back against that and trying to educate where possible, knowing that, you know, sometimes people can't be educated and sometimes it's just going to be a fight that has no end. It's just going to be an ongoing battle. But I think that individuals who are just muddling along and doing the best they can and not enacting diet culture on other people, but they're doing it to themselves or being victimized by it themselves deserve nothing but compassion and support and hopefully we can change the culture so that they don't have to do that, so that they don't have to be stuck in that cycle. And so that people in the very largest bodies will be safe and supported and welcomed into our culture. And people in bodies that are disabled and have chronic illnesses and all the rest will be welcomed and supported. Cause I think if we can create that shift in the culture and it's not going to happen overnight. It may not even happen in our lifetime. But if we can create that shift in the culture, then people won't have to constantly be victimized by it. And more and more people will feel that sense of acceptance and support and self-worth that allows them to achieve true well-being, that allows them to break free from dieting and disordered eating and body shame and all the rest.
1: Yes. Oh, thank you. You articulated that so well. I really wasn't trying to like apply shame to people who aren't on the anti-diet bandwagon. It's not a moral issue. We're all products of society, but you explain that really well. It's a it's a social justice issue. That that makes a lot of sense. And I yeah, thank you for explaining it in that way. And it, you know, I mean, my experience of that was like you were not upset with me when I had a relapse or whatever we want to call it because I wasn't telling other people at the same time to also do that. And even then, you. Probably would have had a talking to me, but you would have like <laughs> understood maybe why as a product totally. of the culture. And I think that compassion, compassion and empathy and vulnerability, I believe, are pretty effective tools for change.
0: Yes, I agree, hundred percent.
1: Okay, I, I honestly I have like a million more questions, but you're gonna just have to come back in in a couple of years, a couple of months, who knows? But let's yes. just end with some fun, quick fire questions. Awesome. What is your greatest lesson on romantic relationships? You've been married for like
0: a year, two, almost two years now. Almost I was at your years. wedding, almost three years. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah, we had a, God. we had the the wedding celebration later, but oh, we that's did the true. whole City that's Hall true. thing before. I mean, oh my gosh, I think. Just like empathy and compassion, kind of like all the stuff we were just talking about, you know, mm-hmm. that having compassion for the person when they don't do exactly what you want them to do because they're not gonna always because right. we're different people and having compassion for each other, even when you're fighting, even when you disagree and like always treating each other with respect, I think is, is so important. And I will say too, like that extends because, you know, you and I talked I think we did an episode of my podcast about relationships and eating disorder recovery when I had just started seeing my now husband, yeah. you know, was then like an early boyfriend. And we were talking about the ways in which basically the choices you make for who to date or even look at as a potential partner when you're not feeling good about yourself can be very different than the choices that you make when you're in a place of recovery where you're valuing yourself, and you know that's not always to say that you can't love someone else before you love yourself because there's many instances and examples of like people stumbling into a great partner and a great relationship when they're in a not a great place themselves, and the partnership actually helps them grow and helps them value themselves more and it stands the test of time, but for me, that was not the case like for me, I got into very codependent patterns in relationships when I was not in recovery, like really actively struggling or in early stage recovery. And I needed to be in a place myself, I think, where I was solid in my recovery, where I valued myself, where I knew my worth in order to find a partner who also had those things, who also knew my worth and had a good relationship with food and valued me and loved me and all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, that has also been my case. <laughs> um, <laughs> I th- really wanted to talk about. Dating and recovery and anti-dieting, but I think that that could be its whole other podcast and actually I think we did it like five years ago <laughs> So I think we can link to that episode because and I probably could use a re-listen But we talk about in that episode as I remember I think we talk about like when to bring it up when you're dating someone mm-hmm. new and how to approach the subject and what to say and how much to share when. And and I think that that was a, a pretty potent conversation with that. So we'll link to that. And I don't know, maybe that is something that we need to do a, a refresh on because I think that could be really supportive.
0: I think that'd be great. It could be like a good Valentine's Day or something. Yeah. I so. Yeah. I think so too. Okay.
1: So quick thoughts on social media. One other thing that I wanted to bring out of your book that we just didn't really have time for was to talk about orthorexia in the book. You talk about where the word came from. It's this tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. reference, and it's just its fascinating, but people can read that in the book. But there's one thing that I remember that Instagram use helps people to more likely have orthorexia, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. Can you talk about social media and your relationship to it
0: and even diet culture? Oh, yes. I mean, so much to say about that. I feel like Social media is such a double-edged sword like it can be so valuable and helpful and it can also be so harmful and I think it just depends on who you follow. You kind of have to know where to look. So I have found great support and relief in following the fat acceptance activists and bloggers and people on social media who share about, you know, accepting their bodies at large sizes and dressing their bodies and enjoying life and having romantic relationships and just doing all the things in, you know, a fat body as they would use that term, you know, in a reclaimed sense, like fat acceptance, fat liberation. I feel like that's such a wonderful environment to be in and, you know, follow so many colleagues of mine on social media that post about related things in the anti-diet space, intuitive eating and health at every size space. I also follow like a lot of on Twitter mostly because I think that's where I get most of my politics interaction or the analysis that I'm getting from people on Twitter just like gives me life. And I follow a lot of social justice minded people there and activists and strategists on the left who I really enjoy following. And I feel like my social media space is like very well curated these days so that I don't see a lot of diet culture but every once in a while some hashtag i follow will have like someone takes it over with something diet culturey and i'm like oh here we go and it gives me a little window into like how other people's social media feeds can be and you know some of my clients come to me telling me that they they're seeing so much toxic diet culture energy on social media and i'm like okay we got to clean up this feed like let's you know figure out how to unfollow the people you need to unfollow and bring in people who are more supportive and inspiring and give you a sense of possibility with anti-diet stuff. So yeah, I I really feel like, you know, at this point, my social media is more helpful than harmful. And I also don't spend a lot of time on it. Like I really treat it as, except for Twitter when I'm reading up on politics and stuff like that, I really treat it as like I get in, get out. Like I post a thing, I engage with people on my work. I treat it as part of my work. It's like part of my work day, although I do sometimes do it after hours as well, but try to have it be like part of my normal work day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think this is also part of my status as an elder millennial that I, you know, can do that and not have it feel like I'm losing something. Whereas I think people younger than me often feel like they've grew up with social media; it's part of the, like the fabric of how they connect. And like yeah. not being on it as much might feel like they're really losing something. And to me that doesn't feel like the case. So I can be like surgical about it and then like text my friends or email them or connect with them in another way that doesn't have to be around social media.
1: I'm so glad you brought that up and I feel like this would be something we would need to talk about in the dating episode because it's just like you said, you know, like I'm I'm in this really great house with four other people and like we do most of our communication through Instagram and you know, they're younger or my age, or younger, and we have a small age gap between you and I, and I think that might be a difference or just the different Mm -hmm. life phases we're in because now it's really a way when people meet each other, they kind of look at each other's social media as a judgment or, and I'm guilty of doing it too, to kind of like see what a person is all about and communicate. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it really tricky because not even from a consumption perspective, but from a, you know, curation of who you are to put it on that isn't really possible and there's body image things tied to that and there's mm-hmm. you know it, it's just a it's a complicated interesting thing that you you know that was astute that you said that because I struggle with it because I obviously do use it for my work but I also don't just use it for my work and wrestling with that is complex a whole nother podcast totally. <laughs> uh, yes um, it's so tricky okay gosh I could talk to you forever As you know, the name of the show is Let It Out. Do you feel like you let out everything you wanted to? Is there anything you really hoped I would ask about that we didn't
0: get to? Did I squeeze you for all your juice? (laughs) (laughs) You did such a great job. I feel like, yes, I've let out everything I want to say about the book for now. There's always so much more, and we'll have to definitely have more episodes in the future because I could always talk to you forever, too. Yeah. Um, But yeah, no, I feel really good. I feel very. Restored and satisfied. Oh, good. Good. How do you feel about the book being out in the world? I feel good about it now. I was very anxious about it when it first was about to come out. And then when it did come out, I was like, you know, obsessively checking up on things and trying to be everywhere and like, you know, monitor conversations people are having about it and stuff. And I feel like I've now like let go of that. And I think some of that is normal. Just what any... We were so excited. We were probably today, I think
1: honestly today we were meant to be doing an event in person in LA, right? Oh
0: my God. Yes. Oh, yeah. I going to be like, yeah.
1: This I was going to be your it. hype girl on your book tour and interview you live everywhere. <laughs> so- I know. <laughs> At least we get to do this well thank you so much for coming on the podcast we'll end by letting out a deep breath together so inhale let it out (sighs) we did Uh, it thank you so much thank you you're the best Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. If you found this conversation insightful or useful and you think a friend would as well, please send it to them. I think this message is really important and I loved this conversation and I would love for you to share it with anyone who you think would also find it interesting or useful. Let me know if you have any feedback for me or the show. Please check out the kits. Again, if you know anyone navigating a breakup right now, or you are, the Soothe and the Solve Kit are available. And there's a discount code, which I forgot to tell you guys about at the beginning, but Quarantine30 gets you 30% off. And I'm actually going to be doing on June 15th, a supportive call, Zoom hang, for everyone who purchases the Solve Kit, which is an eight week breakup, personal growing Workshop that is self study that takes you through week by week, allowing you to use the relationship that just ended as a mirror for personal growth. I call it using heartbreak as a trampoline to grow and look at yourself and examine yourself and where you are and have a creative breakthrough, even by. Reflecting. So that is available. And if you sign up before June 15th, you can join that call and use the code for 30% off. It's quarantine30. And of course, the interview kit is available if that's something you want to dive into and my free journaling 101 kit, obviously. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you love this podcast, leaving a review on iTunes would be so helpful and would really mean a lot. We're coming up on 300 episodes. Can you believe that? It's really bananas. Also, we have a Patreon page, and you may have noticed we don't have any sponsors right now. So if you want to support this so I can keep doing it, please support on Patreon or check out the kits or, you know, share it with a friend. That is just as helpful and useful and means a lot. We have a social media Instagram for Let It Out. It's at Let It Out with three Ts. So follow there. We do a new theme every month and I give out journaling prompts all the time and share about the guests and a lot of content there. And if you are new to Christy, Dive into her work. Get Obsessed with Food Psych, her podcast. It's so wonderful. I've been a guest a couple times. And if you want to know more about Christy and her backstory, she's been a guest on Let It Out several times as well. So I'll make sure we link to those episodes in the show notes. Her book is such a tremendous resource. If you want to dive into any of this more, I highly recommend reading it or sharing it with a friend. And if you want to work with her, she has a really, really great intuitive eating course that I think you would really like. I find it very useful. And she is now helping other people talk about anti-dieting in something called Master Your Anti-Diet Message. So check out her work, follow her on all of the social media let her know that you've listened all the way to the end and the emoji for this week's episode is the bowl of pasta it's the last meal that i ate with christy when we were together and it's the emoji that i'm choosing right now off the top of my head so comment that on christy's instagram on my instagram let us know you're listening all the way to the end the secret emoji as a family I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm so grateful that you listened to this conversation. I know it was a long one. And actually next week, I'm coming out with something new, something completely different. It's a new format of the show. I'm not going to say more. I want it to be a surprise. I wanted it to be the 300th episode, but I think it's actually going to be the 299th episode. (laughs) I can't wait for you to hear it. Just get excited. Subscribe if you're new. (laughs) And I'll talk to you then. Have a great week. Bye.